Welcome, Modern War listeners. This is Captain Jake Moraldi. We apologize for the long hiatus over the past month or so, but we've been busy here at the Modern War Institute winding down the academic year at West Point. That said, we're looking forward to a busy summer of training with cadets, writing blogs and op-eds, and of course doing the podcast. This summer we'll be talking to, we're working to get our podcast back to a once a week podcast, though it may end up being a once every other week, depending on the availability of our guests. This summer we'll continue interviewing key policy folks, as well as key thinkers in the strategy and security fields, including MWI's new adjunct scholars, folks like Andrew Basevich, Dave Johnson, Lieutenant General Dan Bolger, and a whole bunch more. We'll also be working on some thematic podcasts, focusing on megacities as well as A2AD, and then also looking at tying some of our more conceptual work here at the podcast to a ground-level view from captains, lieutenants, and tactical-level folks actually executing some of the policy things we've talked about so far. Make sure you not only check out the podcast, but go to modernwarinstitute.org, check out the blog, check out other podcasts that we have. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there that is really good from cadets and the staff and faculty at the Modern War Institute. So please take a look and make sure you rate us on iTunes. This time on the podcast, we'll be talking to Major DJ Skelton, West Point class of 2003. As a lieutenant, he suffered a number of serious injuries as an infantry platoon leader during the Second Battle of Fallujah. We'll talk to him about training as a second lieutenant, preparing to go to Iraq, how he was wounded, and how he's handled his recoveries. For our interview with Major Skelton, MWI's Major John Spencer will be doing the interviewing. This is the Modern War Institute Podcast. Welcome, DJ. Oh, thank you, John. What a privilege to be back here at uh, these hollowed grounds here at West Point. And we really appreciate you, you being here. Now let's really get into your story. So take us through the battle in which you were wounded in. So in September of 2004, uh, our brigade, our 1st Brigade of the 25th, was always uh, marked to go up to Mosul. So when we arrived to Balad, it was really just to get our stuff and then drive all of our equipment up to up to Mosul. Shortly after we got there, uh, there was identified that one of our battalions in our brigade was needed uh, because we were the striker unit and it had unique capabilities that the Marines wanted had requested that a, a battalion from our unit actually deviate from that and join them as a support role in the Second Battle of Fallujah. And then when that battalion was done with that operation, they would then move uh, up north and reconnect with, with the brigade up in Mosul. And my battalion was was the one identified to, to go to Fallujah. So at that point, as the rest of the brigade and the, and the rest of the battalions in the brigade were, were continuing these, uh, I'll say, casual um, missions to become familiar with the country, with weapon systems, with, with the human terrain, we, our battalion, then quickly focused on the details of the operation of the Second Battle of Fallujah. And once again, this started to look like our training. So operators became extremely detailed, um, and there was now a, a specific purpose for what we needed to be doing in preparation for day to day. Um, we, were, we were still operating internally to our unit. So we weren't discussing at my level as a platoon leader. We weren't, I had no interactions with Marines. I had no interactions with the other Army units that were involved. I think there were 13 Army battalions that helped form a cordon, everything from 1st Cavalry Division to ours. To, so, but we had no interaction with those units. So we were still pretty insular. And, and we actually never knew the big picture, right? So we never knew the entire operation for a host of reasons. Um, so really we were operating with our one piece of the pie. We knew that we were going to be a part of the cordon in the upper northeast section of Fallujah. We knew that there was going to be a cordon 
an outer cordon established. And once the city was sealed, we knew that we were going to drop leaflets off in the town from PSYOPs and air asset um, units that were essentially going to inform the people of Fallujah that if you are between the ages of 15 and 55, which is interpreted by if we think you look 15 to 55, then we will consider, and you're a male, we're going to concede you the enemy, and we will act accordingly. So we were going to give everyone in the city of Fallujah the opportunity to leave, and if we saw yeah. them approaching the outer cordon, we would pick them up, pick up their families, pick up whatever they were carrying, and we personally would relocate them to anywhere they wanted to be in Iraq. And so we knew that, and we knew that the Marines had the main effort. And as soon as we were established, and we had given this the uh, people of Fallujah plenty of time to respond to that order, the Marines were going to come in from the south and essentially do a major clearing operation. Um, and the reality was, not that many people left the city which means that was a lot of enemy that was in the city or perceived, right? Or, yeah. you know, so, so that's about it. Um, so we had to pre-position ourselves in a staging area. That staging area for our battalion was Camp Fallujah. Camp Fallujah was really, it was the staging ground for the first battle of Fallujah. So the Marines had cleared out a section of the desert, put up some berms, uh, put up some GP mediums, and it's about it. It's about as hasty as you can get for a, a brigade talk or a battalion talk. Okay. So we were going to that location. We we're going to co-locate with a Marine unit that was there that was also performing a support a supporting role, and use that as our staging grounds for. So from from there, Camp Fallujah is essentially due east from the center of Fallujah, uh, and it made sense that that's where. We're, stage so that we can drive up and around to the outer northeast uh, corridor of Fallujah. Um, ever since the, the day that we left Balad and permanently moved to Camp Fallujah, there was hostility, there were, there were ticks in pretty much every movement that occurred. Okay. So from the convoy to get to Camp Fallujah to just hanging out in Camp Fallujah. You know, it didn't take a rocket science, no pun intended, to lob, lob an RPG inside our, our, our camp. I mean, we were right outside of Fallujah. Um, you know, and, and what so, else? So going into the... So you're now operating out of Camp Fallujah. You're having firefights or conducting kinetic operations on a daily basis and you receive a mission basically the morning or the the morning of so 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 for about a week we had been essentially exploring and preparing uh the area in which we were going to that was our gap in the cordon that we were closing and so Fallujah has two major roads that are are modern enough that can hold the weight of a lot of our vehicles like Humvees and whatnot. And those two roads in the northeast section intersected each other and they would form a bypass that would that went over a railroad track and that railroad track went all the way to the border in Iran and that, that railroad track was what the locals would use to, to move cargo. And that railroad track went underneath these two roads that were elevated. And just like any highway, right, there's the berms on the side that come up. And it was the outer road of the city. So everything to the west of that road was urban sprawl that went all the way up to that road. And everything to the east of that road now going towards, you know, the directions of Ramadi and, and Baghdad was now desert. And it, it's really definitive in Fallujah. Um, it doesn't kind of fade away. It's just like there's a line drawn. Here's the village. You know, here's the city. Here's the here's the sand. And so, we would first start by 
exploring all the very small villages like Karma and, and, and many of those that are farther away from the city, but still in that in that quadrant in that section, and then you know slowly work your way closer so that when it was time to go in and lock in position, I mean we were holding that terrain for four straight days. So everything up until the, the first day of the offensive was understanding the 360-degree physical geography and human terrain so that if, while our focus is inside the cordon, that we are fully equipped to deal with any threat that's going to come from behind us that's outside the cordon. Um, and so as, as we're, we're doing that, I mean, the enemy is all over the place. So they're concentrated inside the court. They're concentrated in Fallujah. Uh, but, you know, d dealing with uh, gaining a high level of understanding of that space while reacting to the, the small ticks and the small excursions that would come out of that, but never losing sight of the fact that our main purpose was to... to to close this section of the cordon and defend and, and make sure that that section of the road stays intact so that we, you know, our heavy logistics movements can, can transport troops and, and supplies and, and, and uh, resupply, not to mention medevacs. So the morning of, we, we just came out and you know, you, you'd love to say that it was this smooth 12 hours on, 12 hours yeah, off. You yeah. know, that never happens. And we had been out there for um, I, I, almost 24 hours. And we come back, and we're only back for a few hours. And they're like, you need to go back. Like, okay. um, this unit um, that's there, we had a reposition there at a priority. So you need to go back and plan on staying there for 36 hours. Okay. So... So, but for us, this is not new. Like we now have been there for like maybe eight, nine days. It's you know, it's a small. This is a small space. I mean, we're not driving like 50, 60 miles. I mean, it's like five kilometers, okay, and come back. So yeah. you, you get really intimate with with the lay of the land. And so we uh, get back in the vehicles, and let me explain a little bit about their array force. So, so we have four strikers each striker can hold a squad so i have my four infantry squads squads yeah so each, i then each have nine people well a little bit more for Striker. for strikers yep. now so so nine yes for dismounted but now i have nine. drivers yeah. i have uh vehicle commanders i have t tank commanders yeah. i have rws weapons is all so we, we have, we're fat right compared to light infantry but then we also have intel capability. We have a, a vehicle that just has a FLURS, which, okay. is, which is unique to a striker unit. We also have a, uh, uh, a mobile gun system yep. unit that has impressive um, um, mortar round systems on it. I think it, I've they've changed over the years, but I think back then there was at least 13 105s that could be remote fired. There's a lot of firepower. Yeah. So now we have six vehicles, and I think for that, the last mission I was on, I think we were at six, but we were talking about having another striker unit solely dedicated. So all of a sudden, you're like, wow, like, there's like a lot of a lot of people and things. It's a lot for a PO, too. It's a lot for a PO. And the soldiers, you know, you adapt. Yeah. You figure it out. And so, oh, and by the way, we have to bring mechanics. Civilians, because we don't know. It's like this high. It's like a spaceship inside the striker. So if anything goes wrong, we could probably change a flat tire, but that's about it. Right. So now you have this logistical footprint, and so we we go out, uh, and we're going right back to our area. But this time we're going all the way up to the cordon, and we're setting in for the cordon. We're just a day early, so the offensive wasn't supposed to start till the sixth. So we're like, all right, so we're going to go a day and a half early, 36 hours before the, the first day of the offensive. Okay. So that was it. We were going there. We were going to dig in. And so by the time we, we got there, we, we get situated. It's now the evening of the 4th. Uh, sorry, the, the evening of November 6th. The, uh, it's probably 9, pushing 10 o'clock at night. So now it's getting dark. And 
major troop movements have been moving for f- two or three days and positioning themselves. Okay. Which now the city of Fallujah is just the Fourth of July. Like there, there are ticks all over the city. There are rockets all over the place. Um, okay. There are some units that are calling in JDAMs being dropped, yeah. which you know light up the sky and. But they're still distant enough that like, you know what's going on. You know what's going on in this area, but it's just far enough away that that it's not really a threat to you, right? So you're like, okay, well, obviously that's those um, ambushes and those attacks are supposed to be happening over there because that's where the main effort's going to be. We're just the support cordon. And... So we, we're in position, and I give the rest plan for the night, and I tell my guys they need to get sleep this evening. This is the night that, that everyone needs to get the most amount of rest without compromising security. Because starting the next day, it was, you know, at any given time, you know. Yeah, it takes it was, up to start. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be a long hundred and some hours. Yeah, so you're going through all your checks. You're making sure that everyone does their, their um PCIs and PCCs and making sure that everything's ready to go, everything's on standby, making sure that we're protecting food and fuel because we, we're expecting we're, we're not the main effort, so we probably will never see resupplies. So we, we had everything we needed to survive for, for that period of time. And you're tired. You're just emotionally spent. You're physically tired. You've been doing this now for days. And one of my soldiers just came up and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm looking through the, I'm looking through the, through the uh, optics, the optics, yeah. right? And it it really looks like there's a, a car that looks like a Ford Pinto that drove up and parked underneath on the railroad tracks underneath the the, the bridge, and it, the trunk's open, like, and he acknowledged that he was tired, and and so." Uh, a couple of us are, are looking through binocs and other forms of optics and fluoros, and sure enough, there's this car. And that was one of the enemy uh, courses of action that we were afraid of the most, right? Right, so, it's a major line of, um, into the city. Yeah, oh, and by the way, there's no road, right? Yeah. So this car had to have gone off-road, and there was a reason that it was. So there's no other reason that a car would have been, should have been there. So I made the decision, everyone's back up, uh, one squad staying back with the vehicles to help out with the platoon sergeant, with medevac, and any other thing that we need. Okay. With the vehicles, and, and you also need to defend your vehicles, which is something a little bit different than the light infantry. So you decided to move forward on foot. Yep. So okay. we dismounted, and I, I had three squads that were dismounted. I left my weapons back with the vehicles, the, the MGS are manning the mortars, and Check that scenario out, right? Our whole purpose is to make sure that this road system is intact. So we can't really fire a, a mortar round into the vehicle. So that might result in a vehicle blowing up, which would then destroy the road. To... So these are things that I didn't necessarily envisioned. Like I knew how to bound and I knew my battle drills and, and you know, and, and my movements to contact and react to contact. And, and off it, all those things, right? But these are the little things that, you know, you try to problem solve through. So I figured it was the best if we just address this one-on-one, this one on the ground. The smallest weapon system would be the one that would solve this problem for us. That would give us the best, you know, best outcome. So I moved one squad to the left of the bridge so they're more, they're going to come up on the road and have a top-down line of sight advantage, but they would be kind of above the vehicle. Um, and then my other squad was going to the right to the same thing. So if you can imagine the road slopes up on both sides, and then at the the, the peak of the road, at the, the, the highest point of the road is where you're over the railroad tracks, and then it comes back down to a normal, normal slope. And then my squad that I was with, uh, was going to, as soon as they bounded forward and got in a position near the pylons, uh, they were going to suppress that we can move forward. And so that's what happened. Um, 
but as those two squads moved forward and one of my my squad leaders had given the command that they were all set and gave us the command to go ahead and move forward just i mean all hell broke loose and there's now mortar rounds all around us the ground is shaking so bad that it's like a mini earthquake so we're dealing with that That's incoming mortar rounds incoming um there ak-47s grenades like it's just a switch turned on. So it was evident that we were ambushed. It was evident that this had been planned for for a while, half a day at least, to yeah. get that amount. And then it got really frustrating because we were just in that area, right? So when did this occur? And what had happened was we didn't have line of sight inside the city. In order to do that, we would have had to come up on the road, which has silhouetted our, our position, would have given away our position. So we were very careful for that whole week to not go on the other side of the road. Yeah. Um, how, how many do you think were opened up on the, for the initial assault? So I noticed after the fact, after a lot of the accounts had been taken, um, there was a Marine infantry unit that had been fighting in on the other side of the road and had been fighting within 100 yards of that bridge. And two, two days prior, uh, they had gotten ambushed in a very complex ambush with a couple hundred enemy. And we weren't aware of that at all. And so the Marine unit was not their mission, so they pulled out and moved on to where they were supposed to go. And the enemy ended up digging in and 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 waiting for the next American unit to come into place. And we just happened to be the next American, you know, the next foreign unit that was in the area. Um, so it's we, we don't know numbers. Um, I think the best I saw in a report was a, a little over 200. Um, but after all of that, after that firefight, in the next day when there was more unit supporting and they went over the intricacy of tunnels that were built and weapons caches uh, suggests that it was a, a main uh infiltration route in which the 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 enemy that we were fighting there I say that loosely because you know we can't say Iraqis right it was many different people yeah. that were in Fallujah yeah. uh, had been using these route lines that we referred to them to smuggle weapons in from border countries so this is this is the the, the complexity of, of this ambush site had been at least six months in the making. Yeah, right. So, so you we basically walked right into it. We walked right into it, and we didn't we didn't have any clue. Um, you mentioned that there's a basically as your your that last bound and the assault came in, and when the enemy artillery or mortar rounds started coming down on you, there's a J dam that went off nearby. You know, it's silhouetted. Yeah. So this so all all of this happens, and now you're just reacting. Right, so, so my two squads were already in position. It was now my squad that needed to bound forward. Yep. And so you now have difficulty communicating because it's just hard to hear. You know, now there's bullets and, and, and explosions and screaming and... And, you know, this little radio in your ear's phone, like, isn't doing justice. So, so, and it's dark, right? Your night vision is great, but your night vision is that good when there's bright flashes all over the place. So you're trying to reconcile all of that and try to understand, what, like, where is this coming from? What is going on? And uh, one of the units that was inside Fallujah had uh, called in for a JDAM, and as soon as that hit, it lit up from inside the city it lit up the entire horizon of the, of, the, of the sky. And standing on the road was dozens of enemy with AK-47. And, but, so, so at that point, 
the mission's out. Like we're now in survivor mode. We realize yeah. that we're outnumbered. And so I'm trying to communicate back with my platoon sergeant with the vehicle so that I need vehicles now. Yeah. Um, I, I believe I even gave the, the command, one of the last commands I gave was for the, the uh, uh, MGS platoon to fix and locate as you know centers where there is clusters of enemy and prepare to shoot mortar rounds okay on onto the road and during that time um and and i obviously had gotten to the vehicle i don't remember that and so i'm now at the, the location of the vehicle so i'm standing next to one of the cement pylons that's holding up the the, the structure of the road Okay. And an RPG comes in and hits the pylon um, and explodes. It, uh, hits the pylon, the pylon explodes. Um, obviously, the, we now know this after the fact. The head of the RPG broke off, went through my leg, did not detonate because I wouldn't be here. Um, I had several bullet holes. Uh, I woke up through the, the arm, the leg, through the sappy plate themselves. My RTO got shot and wounded, who's next to me. Um, a handful of soldiers uh, and other squads also um, were wounded. And at that point, you know, this conversation now becomes, you know, regurgitating what I've heard from soldiers right. now. And, yeah. and I've read the reports that have come out of it um, and the witness statements. But, um, I just remember I was conscious through a couple minutes after I got hit. Okay. And even after I got hit and was no longer consciously aware, um, you know, the firefight ensued for another 10 minutes. So um, that became the priority of those squads that were forward. So they continue to dig in now and, and, get the enemy to get to the point where they could just stop advancing. Um, they brought in, uh, they tried to bring the vehicles close, but they couldn't um, because of the proximity to the mortar rounds coming inbound. So they brought a foot team through through the firefight with a stretcher to my location. Yeah. I mean, just things you just read about. And you're just like, just like, you know, it's hard to fathom. And, you know, fathers and, and and just incredible husbands and, you know, they're not putting their life in the line for, you know, anything other than just to get to me so they can get me out of the line of fire. So they put me on, a, actually they didn't have time for a stretcher, so they just took took my um, sappy plate and my vest and two, two guys grabbed it and just drug me all the way back to one of the vehicles. Um, that's why I have one of these scars in the back of my head. From my head hitting the hitting the ground, and they called in the QRF. Another unit uh, from our battalion was in the area. They came over. There was a helicopter unit that was in route to another unit that had called in air support, but the air unit had seen our location and and saw the amount of firepower that was being exchanged and. Um, you know, I, you know, would like to believe that, that, that they'd miss it. Yeah. One thing led to another and the decision was to then come and, and support us in route. Yeah. Um, and that all happened in a matter of minutes. Like, no, you know, uh, we couldn't have asked for a better timing, um, of sequence of events. And when the company that was in the area showed up to, to, to augment, that bought us time so that I could be put in a vehicle and my platoon could immediately form a convoy and get all the way back to Abu Ghraib, which is just, I don't know, less than 10 kilometers away, uh, which is where the combat support hospital at the cast site was located, where we actually had uh, surgical tables that were currently being set up to support the operation of, of the Second Battle of Fuzza, Operation Phantom Fury. And was just lucky that we were 
that close proximity to that, that so combat's possible. Just to back up a little bit, um, I said you don't remember most of it because at a certain point you blacked out. Uh, but you said you take you took the RPG to the pylon, which broke off, dislodged into your leg, took out most of your arm, um, but there was shrapnel that went into your cheek, which is probably your most significant. Right, right. So there was shrapnel and or uh, uh, fragments from an AK-47 around that went in through the right cheek and came out the left eye. So my back would have then been towards the enemy in order for that angle to happen. Um, the, you know, shrapnel is way more deadly than a bullet. And so the, when that traveled to, it, it was traveling with such a speed that it just destroyed the upper jaw, the upper palate, the roof of the mouth, and destroyed the entire eye socket out the left. Um, the left hand, the the left hand was all that would dislodge from the body, from the arm. Um, the entire arm was just, you know, uh, shredded from both bullets and and shrapnel. And and then all the other smaller, minor things that played in, you know, little nicks and cuts here. Yeah. Um, I had two bullets that went through my bicep to my left arm, and you know you don't learn about that. And <laughs> now, one of your soldiers not, actually. You know. I mean, you were able to get back quickly. You know, I think that's why you said you. I mean, that that hospital that being set up is so probably the reason you're alive. But one of your soldiers actually performed first aid on you immediately, right? Yeah, I, I had uh, the my RTO actually um, before he got to the point that he, he couldn't contribute anymore. Uh, because he was shot, he um, he was the first to apply for medical attention to me. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I've never had the conversation directly with my soldiers, so it comes third third party, and it comes to spouses, and it comes to other soldiers. But you know, I can't imagine what that scene. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. how do you give first aid to someone that really doesn't have a face? Yeah. Where do you stop the bleeding? You know, and so um, what do you do with the hand, right? And so they took the hand and they put it in, and they, they cracked open an ice pack. They put the hand on the ice pack because what do you do? That's what you do when you cut your finger and you cut your finger off. Yeah. Um, and so... To be able to, in the middle of this intense firefight, to be able to think creatively is something that I will always take with me about how incredible our soldiers are in today's army and how this one medic who decides to go to EMT school instead of, you know, take block leave, learns a little bit about how to put a tracheotomy in and some more advanced medical care and so he knows how to put a trach in and so that was the only way that allowed my body to get enough oxygen that we could keep the heart pumping just enough to get me to this hospital what do you use for for the trach so uh uh some type of shell we think it was a 50 count shell um just by the diameter of it um which is why when you look at my throat it's huge compared to a normal trach user i mean they weren't look. They weren't thinking about. So in a fire, in a firefight, you basically sliced up in your neck and shoved the fifty cal casing into it to breathe through it. Yeah, it's crazy. So you, you wake up, and where are you? So I wake up and I'm in Walter Reed Army Hospital. So I was put into an induced coma immediately. Uh, my path was like many others. Uh, Back to Baghdad, from Baghdad to Longstool in Germany, from Longstool to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. And while I am en route to Baghdad, my parents get a call uh, from some specialist who is in Baghdad at the hospital and in Blad actually, and, and <clears throat> calls them and says, "Hey, we have you know, we're, we're sorry to inform you, but you know, your son's been severely injured." And we are in the process of getting him as quickly as possible to Germany 
However, he needs to get back to Walter Reed. We, we do not have the capability to save him in Germany. So we will fly him to Germany, keep him there as, as short a time as possible until we can get a flight so we can rush him back to the United States. We don't know if he is strong enough and stable enough to survive any of those movements. So what would you like to do? We, we can put you on a plane now to Germany in hopes that you can still be there while your son's alive, but he is in a coma. Or we can fly you directly to Washington, D.C. and hope that by the time we get you there, uh, your son will, will be there waiting for you. So my parents made a decision to travel to Washington, D.C. So they did whatever they had to do to kind of close out life, call whoever they need to deal with the emotional trauma of that phone call. Um, and they packed up as much as they could and they got on a flight and they flew to Washington, D.C. They arrived a couple hours before my flight landed at Andrews Air Force Base and stayed at Walter Reed um, until the following spring in, in 2005 as an inpatient, but uh, remained in an induced coma until the following month in December when I, when I came out of that. Um, but remained and, and did, the majority of my surgeries were done in that period. Um, and most of my surgeries were done uh, in that first six weeks. Okay. Most of it when I was in a coma. So I was, re I was kept in a coma while they could do most of the major reconstructive surgeries. Okay. So, there are going to be very few people that, that we have at the Modern War Institute or that I'm going to talk to that's been through such a traumatic incident. And I know you, you probably get the question a lot and you're, you're very vocal on this, but how do you mentally recover from that trauma? Yeah, so this is a great question. You know, it, one, it's hard. Uh, someone asked me earlier today, how do you prevent, how, how do you prepare for a traumatic moment so that when it happens or if it happens, you're prepared to deal with it? Well, it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, the, the whole definition of trauma is an event that occurs that was never supposed to happen in the first place. So it's like waking up and going through your day expecting to get into a car accident. Like, you know you're in a car accident. Or being in a relationship and you know for a fact that your partner is going to cheat on you. Well, you're gonna manage it differently, right? So a lot of it is, is making sure that you have the relationships in place, you have the, some finances in place. I think about that, like my, my parents are very humble people. They're blue collar workers in the Midwest. Washington DC is expensive. So, to just uproot, stop your job, stop your income, and most employees aren't going to keep you around for months while you're in a hospital supporting them. They just aren't. And and we saw that, unfortunately, with families at the hospital. So that's tens of thousands of dollars of cash that my parents had to, to go through to, to be able to live in Washington, D.C., so they could be by my side 24-7 during months and months and months of, of inpatient care. So having, you know, you're communicating with your family is first and foremost, right? I was a horrible single soldier. I never talked to my parents. I never told them what my life was like. I never let them have a glance of what, my, what life in the military was. So when it came time for them to be introduced to the military, and they're doing it in this very traumatic moment, like it just compounds the pain and the suffering that they have to go through as caregivers. So, so that's one. Uh, and another one is there is no way that you're gonna get through this in life by yourself. Like you have to rely on other people to help you get through this traumatic time. And whether it's having the support base of, of friends and family and communities that you can turn to and say, hey, I can't do this, I need help, 
will you help me? You can you can start right now in building your network, in building your the communities you belong to, building those relationships, genuine relationships, so that if you happen to find yourself in a situation that a traumatic event occurs and it results in permanent change physically or mentally, you have this group that will be with you as you learn how to incorporate these permanent limitations in your life and you redefine your new normal. But, yeah, I mean, I... I, I there's I, no prescription. For, I, you know, there's no drug you're going right. to take. There's no, read this book and you're going to put yeah. this book in your bookshelf so you have it. You know, it's... it. I, and, you know, you're going to fall. A traumatic event occurs. You get blown up in combat. You, you know, you lose a loved one, you get in a car accident, you know, worst things that happen in life. And you're going to crash and you're going to fall. It's just the way the human body works. So I've actually, I've actually been at the advantage of hearing you talk about this topic. So I'm fascinated by you talk about diversifying your, your basically your relationships and expanding your community, whatever that community is, so that. You have these different spokes on your wheel of life that if many of them break, you're still spinning. It's still a, you still have a community of something. So how important is it for future leaders to understand that human need for humans to have that community? And what do you say to a, you know an introverted soldier who's fine with not having one? Uh, humans are pack animals, right? We, we, we need to belong. We need to feel like we belong to something, to something greater than us. It's just inherent in our nature. So even introverts, I mean, they're introverted in the sense that they're not vocally, they're not verbally vocal, mm-hmm. right? But they're not introverted in relationships, right? They need to feel like they belong in someone else's life, on someone else's team, that that uh, even in the military, that they feel like they belong. Yeah. Right. So, to play off that, we you know, first of all, we all have relationships with ourselves. So, h- how do you view yourself? Uh, do you like yourself? Do you, how what's your self esteem like? What? How do you value your self worth? Do you feel like you're worth contributing? Do you ha- feel like you're, you know, are you beautiful? What's your definition of beauty? You know, because um, I never grew up being told that people that are missing limbs and missing eyeballs are beautiful. Beautiful to me was, hey, look at this cover girl on a on a magazine. That's beauty. That's what you need to look like. So, I, I think visiting those those concepts in life and and having a really good idea of what you believe, what's your core value with yourself. So th- that's the first. Defense, yeah. um, and the second is you have a family. You know, we all come into this world with somebody that brought us into this world, and so what's that relationship like? And honestly, in today's society, it doesn't really matter if it's the actual blood relatives that brought you into this world or whoever you consider your go-to in life for a parental unit. But at least you have one. Yeah. Um, and then there's the relationships of friendships, you know, strangers in life that we choose to bring in close to us, uh, communities that we belong to. Maybe you belong to a, a chess club or the Rotary Club or some type of community group, or more maybe it's geographic, right? You know, uh, people I know in Washington D.C. That's my D.C. crew. That's my, you know, um, or maybe it's a a outdoor hobby you know I, I grew up doing outdoor stuff rock climbing and skiing and mountaineering and so i have this community of like people that i share that with that that help me define who i am and help me define happiness uh and then the last of that is you know the existential like you know your relationship with god your relationship with god through church your relationship with spiritual organizations and groups so so all four of these groups 
yourself, your family, your community, your faith, are all spokes to on a bicycle wheel as a visual, right? So if after this traumatic event occurs, if some of those relationships go away, that's okay. But think about that, right? You start bending spokes on a bicycle wheel, you're still going to move forward. It's just going to be wobbly, right? So the quicker that you can fix those, the quicker that you can rebuild those relationships, and they don't have to be, you can create new ones. The stronger, the smoother the rehabilitative post-trauma process is going to be, and the quicker you're going to get back to the path that you were at, at the time of the traumatic event occurs. The definition of resilience. Resilience is the measurement of time in which post-trauma it takes you to get back to where you were pre-trauma. And so, so I like to, to say diversify your funds with that, right? If all you have is faith and nothing else, and you have no other relationship, and a traumatic event occurs like this, a lot of religious people question why yeah. God, yeah. why did this to them, right? And so for some, they abandon their faith. And guess what? You now have nothing. And that is very dangerous when you have nobody in your life that you can go to to deal with this chapter in your life. That is, it, that is extremely emotional and you're extremely fragile. Um, and the same goes to friends and, and things like that. So... Um, the study of resiliency is a new buzzword in the military. We see it all over the time. There's now books left and right. Um, there's some phenomenal research that's going on the to going on on the topic of positivity, positive psychology, the study of happiness. But there's another field that I've actually gravitated towards through this period of my life, and it's it's another aspect of trauma, post trauma. But it's the positive growth aspect of post-traumatic. It's called post-traumatic growth. And what post-traumatic growth's foundation is, is that after a traumatic event occurs, and you have this period that we have defined as resilience, and you're kind of back to where you were in this path of, in life, and you've reestablished the strength of these relationships with most importantly being the relationship you have with yourself. You don't have to stop there. You can actually continue and take this negative event that occurred in your life and you can turn it into the source of a positive growth that can actually make you a stronger human being than you ever would have been had that traumatic event never occurred. And what I'm not saying is going, but I don't, don't interpret this as go out and make traumatic events occur. But what I am saying that if, unfortunately, you have to experience something traumatic that possibly leads to a permanent altercation physically or alteration physically or mentally in your life, that's okay. You know, you're going to fall. You're going to go through a rocky point initially. But when you come out of that at the other end, don't hide from, don't ignore the fact that that traumatic event occurred. Embrace it. That's not who you are. I'm, I'm no longer, D I'm DJ who happened to be wounded 11 years ago. But because of that experience, it's allowed all these other opportunities to occur, which have now made me a stronger human being than I ever would have been had I not been wounded in the Second Battle of Fuji. And I think it's a really powerful message. Um, so I, I suspect I will spend a, a decent portion of the rest of my life further exploring just the awesomeness of the human spirit and and how humans persevere through major setbacks in their life. So you, you were talking about identity. You know, what's your relationship with yourself? How do you identify yourself? So... We know that you went on. You you went on after you you recovered. I know you're still recovering from the wounds um, from the Battle of Fuja, Second Battle of Fuja. But you also identified yourself as a soldier, and talk to us quickly about how that led to you in command of an infantry element in Afghanistan, which got you dubbed the most 
wounded soldier to command in history? Yeah, the the uh, the brand of wounded warrior is I, it it there are positive and negative repercussions of branding someone a wounded warrior, and so. When I came out of the hospital and started to figure out how I was going to continue my life with these new limitations and go back to doing the things I love to do, America, society, the military, the army automatically put me in this category of DJ, the wounded warrior. And... So the ability for an organization such as the Army to manage me with my peers was no longer there. I, I could, the system could only manage me as a wounded warrior, not as Lieutenant Skelton, who's an infantry officer or who's another MOS, right? So, but you don't recognize that right away. And, and everywhere you go, there's the... the the hero complex where, oh, you're, you're a hero. Let me buy you a free meal. You're a hero. Let me do this. Oh, you're a wounded warrior. Well, you deserve all of these things. And there's a sense of entitlement that ensues over time amongst our wounded warriors. And now we're seeing it with veterans in our relationship with America. And I always had a problem with that because, Yes, I was wounded on the battlefield, but I have so much more to offer. Like I, I, I spoke Chinese, I graduated from West Point, I had this experience in leadership in, in small units. Couldn't I take all those lessons and skill sets and apply them in another aspect of military? I'm never going to do push-ups and sit-ups again. I'm never going to run two miles again, but I can serve in a different capacity. And so... Through the years of, of rehabilitating myself and relearning what my new level of capability was, both physically and what I can mentally handle, it just didn't make marry up and make sense with the system itself that was telling me all the things that I could never do when I was learning on my own all the things that I could do. In 2010, when I finally was like, I, I'm done, I quit, I got I, I don't want to be a wounded warrior. I don't want to advocate for wounded warriors. I don't want to, I just want to go back to being with my peers and serving as a commission officer that does a job or let me leave so I can go do other things in the military, other things in society. And that was the first time that the military didn't say no. And so when I showed up to the unit, it was Captain Skelton Commander. It wasn't Captain Skelton, wounded warrior. It wasn't, and I wasn't treated as such. <laughs> the, the harsh reality of serving with friends that really love you and care about you is they hold you to the same standards as everybody else. If this country is going to ask its citizens to volunteer, then we have an obligation to train their leaders to be 100% of body and mind as they go into harm's way. That's the least that we can assure the American public that we are taking care of them. And that's just on the human element, right? And we'd hope to believe that we also give them the best equipment and the best training and the best weapons and the best health care and all that other. But at the basic level, we're going to put a leader that is the most fit physically and mentally and the most trained intellectually and tactically in charge of the sons and daughters that were asking America to help volunteer. And, you know, I'm not. I, I tried for years to pretend that I was like everybody else, that I looked like a normal person, that I looked like my peers in, in uniform. But at the end of the day, I'm not. Um, I, I've had unique medical issues. I have permanent limitations in what I can do physically. I have, you know... Uh, stress stressors that are unique to your average person that I have to deal with mentally, you know, whether it's post-trauma or whether it's 
the stresses of just being wounded and dealing with a lot of artificial stuff in my body. I have pain issues I have to manage. And so all of those distract my ability to, con to concentrate 100% on a task at hand because I'm constantly being distracted where, frankly, you, John, and my other peers don't have to deal with that. So you really can put all of your attention to solving problems and leading soldiers. And frankly, at the, at the bare minimum, that needs to be the standard. It's a hard thing to say. But that being said, I've, I've met a couple wounded warriors over the years that I would advocate wholeheartedly uh, if they wanted to, which none have, um, if they wanted to go back in a command position in a combat arms unit that happened to be in a combat zone, I would, I would say absolutely that they're in a much better place uh, than, I, than I am in life. So I know that you still are recovering, both physically and mentally, and you've had bad days. And you talked about those in a couple of your talks about some of your bad days, and then there was somebody there of that community you talk about you could turn to. If there is somebody out there listening or if a leader knows of another person having a bad day, what would be your, your recommendations? Yeah, first I'll tell you, pick up the phone and call somebody. That's pretty much a cliche, though. So, you know, first grab a pen and, and grab a napkin or a piece of toilet paper or, or a sheet of paper and just start writing. Writing about what it is that's frustrating you and, and making you upset. What, what, what problem are you having and who are you having it with? And what, and what aspect of, of what it is that's causing you ups, to be upset, uh, what, what, what is that? Describe it, right? And, and you'll find that in the absence of having someone that readily available on your speed dial, which is nothing more than taking a thought and expressing it, you're just doing it verbally, you're doing the exact same thing, but you're doing it through writing. And you'll find that it'll take the edge off. And then once that takes the edge off and you have a little bit more control over your emotions, then take a look at who you have in your life. Can you call a parent? Can you talk to your spouse? Do you, so some people can talk to their children about this. Do you have a best friend that you can call? Some people are now turning to social media and doing Facebook posts and talking about some of their trials and tribulations in life. And the more that you can express that in some form of communication, the more control you're going to get over your thoughts and over your emotions, which will buy time and space for you to figure out a solution of how you're going to deal with that. And sometimes you have to pay for it. Right. Sometimes you have to and by pay for it, I mean, financially, sometimes you have to go to a doctor and pay someone to listen to you. Um, but I would argue and that's fine, too. I mean, if you don't have anyone in your life, go 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 see a psychologist. But for most of us, I, I would argue that you have someone in your life that can be a sounding board and can help you work through whatever you want. And if you've gone through something in life and you've learned some lessons. And I'm, I'm at this stage in my life right now, too, that I don't want anyone to have to go through what I did the last 10 years. That is brutal. I'm glad I went through it because it, I have these amazing lessons that I've learned in life. But it's not going to do me or anyone good if I don't tell anyone about it. Right. It's like, right. So I have found just recently, uh, just over the last couple of years, that... Um, just by telling my story, there are other people out there that have remained quiet and silent because they feel like no one else can relate or no one else can understand what they're going through. And by hearing a story such as mine, I feel relieved that they're not alone. So even though I might not ever talk to these people or meet them, I, I, am, I really do believe that we're not alone. There are other people that have suffered 
more than I have. And if it wasn't for them sharing their story and what they did to persevere and overcome their their um, hurdles and setbacks in life, uh, it never would have given me hope that there is a way to get to a period of life that on my own I could never figure out how to get through that on my own. So. Well, I think that's about does it, DJ. I really appreciate you sitting down with us um, and your visit overall. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership.